0: All right, First Peter. I'm going to go through some uh, introductory issues for you and then, and then look at verses 1 and 2. In terms of introduction, what is this book about? How is it the same or different from other letters in the New Testament? Why was it written? Who wrote it? And to whom? We're going to answer some of these questions briefly before we look at the main theme of the book which I believe is found in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. Peter says, uh, or verse 12 rather, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying, this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Why did Peter write his letter? Because he wanted them to know God's grace. He wanted them to stand in God's grace. Who's the author then? The author is Simon Peter. He describes himself in verse 1 as an apostle. He's one of the 12 apostles, perhaps the most well-known uh, because of being outspoken and being a leader among the rest. When it was uh, time to view the transfiguration, Peter is the one who says, let's just stay up here forever. When it was time to, uh, Jesus is coming and walking across the water, Peter's the one who gets out of the boat. He doesn't make it very far, but he's the one that gets out of the boat, ready to walk over to Jesus. When there is discussion about whether Jesus will be crucified or not. Peter is the one who steps up and says, don't don't let that happen. And Jesus obviously rebukes him. But the point is, whether he was right or whether he was wrong, whether he had faith or, or followed through or whether his faith started to waver, Peter was the one who was ready to speak up and to step out. Now, his approach to life obviously changed somewhat. God humbled him through the process of him having denied Christ three times. Jesus warned him that it was going to happen, and then it did happen, and Peter is heartbroken, and I think genuine repentance and sorrow for his denial of Christ. So much so that at the end of John's gospel, in John 21, uh, Jesus says, Do you love me? And Peter won't even look Jesus in the eyes. That's how ashamed he was of what he had done in denying Christ. And yet, through that moment with Jesus, Jesus asks him the question three times, and calls him to ministry three times. Peter is restored to a position of service, no less bold for the sake of the gospel, but certainly less brash and self-serving in his response to situations. And so we see God using him uh, in the founding of the early church. For example, in Acts 2, he preaches a sermon. Many are saved and they turn in repentance to Jesus and they believe in him. Uh, He continues in faith in Acts 3 and 4 despite being thrown in jail after the healing of the lame man when the religious leaders say stop teaching and preaching about Jesus anymore. He is at a point where his faith in God is such that he's able to sleep when in Acts 12 it looks like he's going to be put to death the next morning. God delivers him miraculously from prison and he continues to serve God for a number of years. According to church tradition, he lived until the AD 60s, so some 30 years after Jesus died and was resurrected. And so um, that leads then to when does he write this letter? If he was martyred as uh, we believe he was around AD 64, 65, this would have been probably no more than a few years before uh, that point, so probably around AD 62. Why is he writing this letter? Peter is writing to believers. We see this in verses 1 and 2, which we already read. Notice that it says uh, those who are chosen, and then according to all these things, essentially saying you are believers in Jesus, you've been chosen by God, and you are uh, saints. Not in a mystical kind of way, not in a here's some miracle you did during your lifetime kind of way, but just simply as followers of Jesus Christ. He's writing to them. As they face persecution, verse 6 says that they are distressed by various trials. Chapter 2, verse 12 says they slander you as evildoers. So there's opposition from unbelievers around them. Chapter 2, verse 19 says a person should bear up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. They're experiencing unjust uh, suffering. Christ is your example in suffering. Chapter 2, verse 21 Chapter 3, verses, in verse 9 particularly, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. So as they were facing this persecution, here's how they were supposed to respond. Chapter 3, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Chapter 3, verse 17, it is better you should suffer for doing what is right. Chapter 4, verse 4, there is a surprise by unbelievers that you do not run with them to the same excess of dissipation, and they malign or they speak evil of you. Chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. Chapter 4, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. And then chapter 5, verses 9 and following, resist him firm in your faith, knowing the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you've suffered for a little while, God will call you and to him be dominion forever and ever. So Peter is writing to believers who are facing potentially intense persecution. And persecution takes the form not only of unbelievers speaking evil of them, but as we see in a variety of other places in the New Testament, sometimes the loss of property, the loss of freedom, the loss of family relationships, and even the loss of life. And so these oppositions, these persecutions, were not merely being thought less well of than we would hope for. There was actual and real consequences to them following Jesus faithfully. In the midst of these things, Peter writes to remind them of the precious salvation they have received through Jesus and the connected blessings that God has promised. Going back to chapter 1 and verse 4, you have an inheritance which will not fade away, that is reserved in heaven for you. Chapter 4, verse 7, Your faith is more precious than gold that is perishable. Chapter 1, verse 9, You obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Chapter 1, verse 19, You've been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 4, Coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Once you were not a people, but now God's people. Once you did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then at chapter 2, verse 25, you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Chapter 3, verse 9, you are called that you might inherit a blessing. Chapter 4, verse 14, if you are reviled, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Chapter 5, verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And as I already mentioned in 5, verse 10, after you've suffered, God will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So God, or Pete, God is reminding them through Peter of all the blessings of their salvation, the inheritance that they are promised. This is something that is to sustain them in the trials which they face. Peter reminds them to stand firm in God's grace. I mentioned that from chapter 5, verse 12. As they love one another. You see this theme of love. For example, in chapter 1 verse 22, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Chapter 2 verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Chapter 3 verse 8, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And then chapter 5 verse 14, greet one another with a kiss of love. So Peter reminds them to stand firm in God's grace as they love one another, as they press on towards spiritual maturity. We see this particularly in the beginning of chapter 2. He says, Putting aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So he wants them to press on towards spiritual maturity. How does this take place? Well, it takes place significantly throughout this letter by putting off the old, empty, lustful way of life that characterized them before. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Verse 18, there is this idea of you were redeemed from a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. Chapter 2, verse 1, put aside all these evil things. Chapter 2, 11, and 12, as aliens and strangers abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Chapter 2, verse 24. God's goal in salvation is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 9. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We see this a little bit later in chapter 4 in verses 15 and 16. Don't suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler. They were suffering as Christians, but it's possible also to suffer because you're doing evil. Chapter 5, verse 2, do Don't an exhortation to church leaders, don't do it for sordid gain, don't do it under compulsion. Chapter 5, verse 8 Watch out for the fact that your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So, stand firm in God's grace as you love one another, pressing on toward maturity by putting off the old lustful way of life that was empty and foolish. He exhorts a number of different groups toward these goals. Believers generally, servants and masters in chapter 2, verses 18 and 20, husbands and wives, chapter 3, 1 through 7 elders in the congregation, chapter 5, 1 through 5. Peter sees God using his word to accomplish this maturity from the beginning of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 23, You have been born again out of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This continues throughout life. Long for the pure milk of the word to grow in respect of salvation, and it continues until Jesus returns. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In light of all these things, I think verses like one thirteen through 16 are key in understanding Peter's purpose. And uh, I don't want to take away from when we look at those verses later, but I'll just read them for you quickly. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely to the grace be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is Peter's occasion and his purpose. You're facing trials and persecution. You need to press on to maturity anyway. You might be tempted to go back to your old, empty, lustful, ignorant way of life. Don't go back there. Look for the coming of Jesus. You might be tempted to live selfishly. Live in love for one another. You might be uh, tempted to stop following after God. Here are the blessings of your salvation, the inheritance that you have in Him that make it all worthwhile. But who's Peter saying these things to? There's significant disagreement uh, about whether Peter is writing to Jewish believers or Gentile believers or some combination of the two. Those who argue that Peter was writing to Jews point out the description of scattered people in chapter one, verse two, Uh, I'm sorry, chapter one, verse one, where it says scattered, those who reside as aliens scattered throughout these various regions of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. Uh, the only other two places we see this word used in the New Testament is James 1.1, 1, 1, the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, and John 7.35, our people live scattered among the Greeks. There is a similar, perhaps, allusion in Acts 2 when it talks about Jewish people from all of these different ethnic back well, Ethnic not the right word. Uh, cultural backgrounds. Jewish people from all around the known world were gathered for the Feast of Pentecost, but they're hearing the message about the great works of God and the work of the Holy Spirit being testified to in their own languages. There's obviously the conflict in the early church between Greek-speaking Jews and Hebrew-speaking Jews in Acts chapter 6, but even in Acts 2, there's this allusion to Jewish people scattered throughout the world speaking a variety of languages, uh, many of whom did not return home. I think sometimes we think that the Jewish people all came back after uh, God sent them into exile, right? But who came back? The people who were scattered into Babylon. The people who were scattered by the Assyrian Empire, many of them stayed where they were and never returned to the land of Israel. So the first idea in support of this being a Jewish audience is the idea of them being described as those who are scattered. There's description of the prophets serving future generations and not themselves. uh, And that we see that... In Second um, Peter, particularly, and there is a reference to people, not people. Um, I'm sorry, that's actually chapter one, verse twelve. It comes up again in Second Peter: the prophets serving themselves and not you. Uh, the idea of chapter two, verse nine and ten, where it says, "A chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, for God's own possession." that language first and foremost referred to the people of israel in the old testament in the book of hosea in other places throughout the old testament uh, is an apt description of israel of uh, chapter 2 verse 25 when it says you were strained like sheep as we went through isaiah we saw god uh, talking about them as sheep and god, jesus being their shepherd and all those sorts of things, the coming Messiah being the one who has shepherd them. We see those references over and over, and over again. We even see it in the book of Matthew. Jesus looks with the compassion, seeing them as people who are scattered without a shepherd. There are a number of quotes from the Old Testament. We see a quote from the Old Testament in chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. Uh, there's actually one, cha- one in chapter 1, verse 16. Chapter 2, verse 6. 2, verse uh, 7 and 8. 2 verses 9 and 10, um, there's a quote from the Gospels in 2.22, there's a quote from, I believe, the Psalms in chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, and uh, another quote from the Old Testament in chapter 3, verse 18, and then this idea of God being opposed to the proud and giving grace to the humble in chapter 5. Now, is it possible to quote Old Testament text to non-Jewish audiences? Yes but the Jewish audiences were the ones who would have actually gotten the reference that's being made. Uh, In connection with this point, um, glance with me, if you would, at Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, Peter speaks to a Jewish audience, obviously from places around the world, but a Jewish audience. Quotes from the prophet Joel in verses 17 through 21. Quotes from the Psalms in verses 25 through 28. Quotes again in verse 30, verse 31, verse 34 and 35. There's a bunch of Old Testament quotes in his sermon to a Jewish audience. If you flip over to Acts chapter 10, notice Peter's words to Cornelius. In chapter 10, verses 34 through 48, what do we see a significant absence of? Old Testament quotations. Now, does he talk about things? Absolutely. He says, uh, he alludes to the words of the prophets in chapter 10, verse 43. He talks primarily, though, about present-day events related to Jesus and his ministry. Now, That is not in and of itself a conclusive argument that this is a Jewish audience for 1 Peter, but it's something that we should at least consider. If Peter talked one way to Jewish believers, if he was primarily an apostle to Jews, uh, even though there was this one incident with Cornelius and a few others in the book of Acts, if his ministry was primarily to Jewish people and he talked one way to Jewish people and another way to Gentile people, it seems to reason that he would have a similar approach in his letters. Again, by itself, that's not a conclusive proof, but it's something that I think should bear some weight. Another thing that's been pointed out, uh, going back to 1 Peter, is when Peter talks about them as aliens and strangers and keeping your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, it says, they slandered you, they may observe your your good works and glorify God. It is possible that he's talking about Gentiles who are not really Gentiles anymore because they're now following Jesus. But this distinguishing between you and them kind of idea fits much more with a Jewish audience than it would potentially with a Gentile audience. This was the understanding of 1 Peter for a long time. In the last couple of hundred years, there's been an increasing sense that Peter is referring to Gentile believers when he writes his letter. They say, for example, when he says those who reside as aliens could refer to those who are distinguished from unbelievers around them. And yes, that term is used for believers who are scattered in James 1 and John 7, but perhaps it could also refer to those who reside as pilgrims and strangers in the world. They would argue that when it says a futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, chapter 1, verse 18, how could Peter be describing those who have the law and to some extent are following the law as having inherited a feudal way of life? That seems to be more of a Gentile idea. You weren't following the right things. Now you've heard about Jesus and you will follow God. Uh, and then verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, when he describes them as having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries, how could that apply to good Jews Uh, I mean, surely that has to be referring to Gentiles. A couple of points in response to these things, just to uh, lay it all out alongside it. When it says those who reside as aliens, the idea of Christians living as aliens or strangers among a culture that is hostile to them, that's an idea that I think we have picked up, for example, from the book of Hebrews, which incidentally was written to a Jewish audience, and other places like 1 Peter, and then applied to ourselves that I think sometimes in turn we then go and try to read back into those books that we originally got them from. Which is to say, if our reason for saying live as strangers around in the world is because we got it from First Peter and Hebrews, and if we are convinced that at least Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience, we shouldn't immediately say, well, First Peter was written to a Gentile audience because we as Gentiles have taken his words and applied them to ourselves today. Does that make sense? Um, And I think it's easy for us to be influenced by the Christianization of our language that we use in the church. And then those ideas get taken back into the New Testament. So let me give you an example of this. The phrase, ask Jesus into your heart. Is that the way that the apostles proclaim the gospel in the New Testament? No. It's sort of a Sunday school kind of idea that comes from... The passage where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone lets me in, I'll come and dwell with him. Which is a picture of acceptance, yes, of following, of welcoming Jesus as a part of your life, all that sort of thing. But that's not really the way the apostles typically proclaim the gospel. They would say things like, repent. They would say things like, you crucified Jesus and you are guilty. Repent and believe in him. They would say things to Gentile audiences like, you've been worshiping idols, let me tell you about the one true God. They wouldn't say things like, ask Jesus into your heart that it may be well with you. Is that phrase sinful? No, but it's a Christianization of a Bible verse that has gotten pretty far removed from the original context. That's the sort of thing that I'm talking about and we have to be careful of when we're reading the New Testament. Paul described the traditions of the Gentiles in Colossians 2.8 and Ephesians 2.2 as empty. And yet Paul and Jesus also described the traditions of the Jewish religious leaders in similar terms. We see this, for example, in uh, Matthew 15, verse 3. Let me read that for you quickly here. Jesus says, why do you transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? And then he describes what that looks like. And he says, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. So you have an empty tradition that gets away from what God actually said and binds people's consciences and lives and leads them to disobedience. We see this also, for example, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14. Paul says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. And then he says, basically, this is all worthless. So the traditions from the Jewish forefathers that added to God's word and eventually replaced God's word, that can be described as empty. The traditions from Gentile ancestors of pagan idolatry, that can be described as empty. So that doesn't conclusively show one way or the other. What about this question of living in abominable lusts and idolatries and all those sorts of things? Could Jewish people be described in those terms? Well, Paul described the Gentiles in Ephesians 4, 17 to 19, and himself as a Jewish religious leader, 1 Timothy 1, 13, as ignorant. Peter described his fellow Israelites, and particularly the religious leaders, as ignorant and yet guilty in crucifying Jesus. And then if we look, for example, at Romans chapter 2, Paul says a very interesting thing in describing the fact that all are sinners. He says in chapter 2, verses 17 and following, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then he says a little bit later, He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. And then a little bit later in chapter 3, he says, We have charged that Jews and Greeks are all under sin, for there is none righteous, not even one. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, The path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Is it possible for a Jewish person who has the law and all of those sorts of things to yet reject that law and commit the very sins that they hold themselves above? Absolutely. Here's the irony. The religious leaders in Jerusalem were convinced that they knew God's law and follow God's law and should teach other people God's law. What did they do with Jesus, and what did they try to do with the apostles? They bore false witness against their neighbor, which broke God's law, and they schemed to put them to death, which broke God's law with regard to not murdering people. So if the religious leaders, the epitome of holding up the law to the people in Jerusalem, are committing false witness and murder... What do we think is likely to be going on for people in the far flung reaches of the Roman Empire, far away from the temple worship and all those sorts of things? It is not inconceivable that you had someone who is a Jewish person who goes through the rituals, attends worship at the synagogue, and also participates to a greater or lesser extent in the sins of the world around them. whether or not the story of the woman caught in adultery is canonical, as in should it be in the New Testament, because there's a lot of older manuscripts that don't have it. Here's the interesting thing about that story. If it describes a true and accurate historical event, how did they know that the woman was caught in adultery? Either they were spying on her, or it was one of them that was doing it which in either case exposes an attitude of not having the best interest of the people they're supposed to be leading at heart, or even worse than that, a hypocrisy that says, I will sin so that I can catch someone else at sin so that I can accuse them before God, which is a bizarre and corrupt way of thinking, but shocking as it would be, and this is one of the other objections uh, or thoughts here, well, isn't this amazing that um, Gentiles could be described as priests to God? So if we say it's a Gentile audience, then what do we do with this thing where it says they're priests to God? And how could Gentiles ever be priests to God? Isaiah held out this vision prophetically in Isaiah 66 that we just looked at here recently, that it seems to be saying that among the nations, God is going to select Gentiles to serve him as priests and to worship in his temple. And at the very least, we know that he accepts the worship of Gentiles in his temple because of the comments that are made to foreigners and to eunuchs back in Isaiah 56, and also Isaiah 49. This fits well alongside this. Uh, Paul does speak in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to a primarily Gentile audience in Rome that they are to present themselves as a living sacrifice to do priestly service of worship. And the Ephesians, that God was building them up as a holy temple for his service. So what should we conclude? I think that 1 Peter, if I had to take all of the evidence of the moment, I think it leans strongly toward being a Jewish audience. But here's the reality. Whether Peter was writing to Jews about truths that apply to Gentiles or writing to Gentiles with truths that apply to Jews or a church that was composed in some way of both groups, his message is clear you're a sinner and god has saved you so you need to press on in maturity love for one another and for god perseverance and faith despite persecution don't turn back to your old hypocrisy and lust the emptiness of life apart from god stand fast in god's true grace like a number of other new testament letters paul begins with a greeting and then a blessing to god for his work in salvation Talks to his audience for several chapters and concludes with a blessing in chapter 5, verse 11, final greetings and instructions, and then the phrase, Peace to all in Christ. So let's look briefly here at Peter's greeting that identifies himself as the author as well as his audience. We see in chapter 1, verse 1, that God speaks through appointed messengers. God speaks through appointed messengers. Peter was selected by Jesus to be an apostle and testify to the resurrection. And glorify God in His life and death despite His former failures. We see this in verse one. Peter claims himself to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. Second uh, Peter chapter one, verses 16 to 18 says, "We were made eyewitnesses of His majesty. We ourselves heard this utterance." In, Ch- in Acts chapter one, verses 21 and 22. Their requirements for an apostle shows that they viewed themselves as being in the category of those who had walked with Jesus, observed his work, participated in his miracles. Uh, John 21, I already referenced, uh, 15 through 23. And then Acts chapter 2 and following, we see Peter's ministry as an apostle. He's appointed by God as an apostle, as one to bear witness about Jesus. And in these letters, Peter continues that ministry. He is testifying of God's grace a few last times before his death. Why do I say a few last times? Because in 2 Peter 1, he says in verse 14, the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. The entirety of Peter's life, from the point when which he first started following Jesus until he dies some 30 or so years later, is supposed to be dedicated to testifying to Jesus' ministry. And he does so both by his life and his preaching and now by these two letters. So first of all, God speaks through appointed messengers. Second of all, God speaks to his people in need. 1 Peter 1 and verse uh, 1, God has a chosen people. This was true for the Israelites going back to the promises of God made to Abraham in Genesis 12 and following. God chose out a people for himself, the people of Israel. And this is true in a similar but distinct sense in the remnant of that people, like we looked at in Isaiah, and in the elect from among all the nations as God calls out a people for himself who are his people. And so even if Peter is speaking to a Jewish audience, as I would argue that he, he is, these things are even more true for the remnant of Israel that is truly following God that Peter would be addressing and their counterparts among the Gentiles that Paul and others are addressing in the letters to Ephesians and Romans and so forth. So God has a chosen people. They are still God's chosen people despite being scattered. Some of these believers probably trusted Jesus in the early days of the church. We see reference to Pontus and Asia and Cappadocia in Acts 2 and verse 9. Others are probably saved under Paul's ministry, as we see some of these other locations referenced in Acts 16, verse 6, 18, 1 Corinthians 16:1, and 2 Timothy 4:10. Still others are probably saved through the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla, as they serve according to Acts 18 and verse 2. And so these people are called out to follow after God by various people who are proclaiming the gospel to them by Peter and the other apostles early on, by Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and others who are serving God later in the history of the church. Their status as God's chosen people is no accident. God the Father planned it. We see in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, the Spirit set them apart, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Sometimes we hear sanctification and we think to be made holy, which is what's being accomplished by it, But at this basic level, sanctification is being set apart. So God the Father said, I'm going to save you. The Spirit actually sets them apart and makes that happen at a specific point in time. And the basis for it happening is the purification being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. It's the picture that we looked at in Exodus and Leviticus a while back, where they would take the the blood of the animal and they would sprinkle it over the people, right? To be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus is to be purified by his blood. And the goal of this is to make obedience possible, to obey Jesus Christ. And so, they are scattered, but they are scattered not necessarily in God's judgment, though perhaps some of them had been scattered because of the persecution that came into the church at Jerusalem. Some of them, uh, we see a clear example of this with Aquila and Priscilla. They're in Rome, and then they get kicked out of Rome due to persecution, And God uses that to encourage them to go to a new place. And so then they serve alongside Paul in Corinth. And so perhaps they are scattered because these are just their hometowns from the exile. Perhaps they are scattered through persecution. Regardless of the reason of their scattering, it doesn't negate the fact that they have been chosen by God and brought to salvation. So God uses Peter to encourage them in their time of need. What are the two temptations that they would have likely faced. For those who had been following Jesus for a while, there would have been a temptation to stop pressing on toward maturity. I think we see this for, particularly in 2 Peter, but we see a glimpse of it in chapter 2 of 1 Peter. But in 2 Peter, when it says, um, He who lacks these things is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the purification from his former sins. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Uh The longer you go on in the faith the more temptation there is to say i've been following god for a really long time i can just sort of coast my way into heaven right we must always be renewing our commitment to god and stirring ourselves up in being faithful to god not just saying i believed in jesus a long time ago it's good enough i don't need to worry about that anymore i'm all set there's also the reality that when we face some measure of persecution it is reasonable to ask why lord and be tempted to stop believing in God. So we see this in 1 Peter 1, verse 6. You've been distressed by various trials. We see it in chapter 3, verse 14. You are blessed. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. Chapter 5, verse 10. After you've suffered for a little while, Peter's reassuring them that their suffering has an end point. And then 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, verses 1 through 9 is all this stuff about the day of the Lord and have you missed God's favor? And uh, what is, is he still even at work in the world? Why is Peter saying these things to them? Because there's a strong temptation in a long duration of following God combined with persecution to question whether you should actually still keep following after God. What is the message God speaks through Peter. We tend to skip over a phrase like this, but in verse 2 it says, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Okay, nice. Move on to what the book is really about. That is what the book is about. The message that God speaks through Peter is God's grace is in you, so stand in it. How do we experience God's grace and peace? It's the basis for our salvation. Peter said this himself in Acts 15, verse 11. God's grace has come to the Gentiles as much as it came to us, and so we accept them as fellow believers. God's peace is the result. 1 Peter 5, verse 14. Peace be to all you who are in Christ. But it is not just the basis and the beginning point of our salvation, but it is the basis for our ongoing relationship with God. We see this, for example, in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. It says... For husbands to show wives honor as fellow heirs of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. It is the basis for your ongoing relationship with God. We see this in chapter four, verse ten: serve as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Second Peter three verse eighteen says, "Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." We see this also in Acts four thirty three, and we see it in First Peter chapter three. Uh, verse 11 where it says he who must turn away from evil and do good must seek peace and pursue it so grace and peace the basis of our ongoing relationship with god and grace and peace is the basis of our future hope of life with god first peter 1 verse 13 says fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you with the revelation of jesus christ you are saved by grace sustained by grace you will be delivered by grace when Jesus returns. So, what should we then do? We should stand in God's grace and peace. So we experience God's grace and peace and salvation, but God also desires we would possess grace and peace abundantly as we know Him better. 1 Peter 1, verse 2, May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What is Peter's goal? It's not, may you have grace and peace. Okay, that's a nice phrase to say. It's, may you actually know and experience God's grace and God's peace because that is what you need in the midst of persecution and temptations to fall away from following God. You started believing in Him? Great. Don't forget to keep following Him. How is that going to happen? Because you are saved by grace, because you're sustained by grace, because grace will bring you home. So what lesson should we take from these first two verses that Peter gives us in this letter? If you're obedient to Jesus as someone who's been purified and sanctified by God, God knows your need and sends the right person and the right message to sustain you in your difficulty. And what is that message? grace and peace be yours in abundance. So when you are tempted to say, I've known Jesus for decades, I've been in church my whole life, what more could God possibly expect of me? You still have room to grow in the knowledge of God's grace and the experience of it. If you say some great difficulty has come into my life, And I am tempted to doubt whether I should still follow God, if He's still even there, if He is at work in me. Maybe it would be better, like the Israelites, maybe it would be better if we go back to Egypt. I'm following after God. Maybe it would be easier if I stop trying to fight against the lusts and the pull of this world and I go my own way. God will send His abundant grace to help you if you seek after Him. Peter's message, grace and peace be yours in abundance. We'll learn more about all these things as we go through the rest of Peter's letter, but let's take that message of hope as we go this week. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths from Peter's life, to get an overview of what he's saying in his letter, and then to look at this first message that he shares with us, that we may have grace and peace in abundance. Lord, that is our prayer that we would have those things. Because we have begun to follow you, because we are seeking your help day by day, because we're looking to the future hope that you've held out before us, and because if all these things are true, we have peace with you, and we will know that peace more and more fully the closer we get to your eternal presence. And so we pray that we might experience these things in abundance even this week and realize what it is that you have given to us in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.